Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about less than human. Not the pro-life position as it is, but perhaps the pro-life position as it ought to be. A couple of weeks ago on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page, and perhaps also on Twitter, I'm on both. Inappropriate Conversations is listed as a cause among the pages on Facebook, and I can be found on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg. And since I'm mentioning other things, Inappropriate Conversations can also be listened to on Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is a very good way to listen to podcasts on the go. But I put up a flare a couple of weeks back, looking for help because I really wanted for this particular Inappropriate Conversations episode to have a different drummer who was pro-life. And my terms were really pretty simple. I wanted a pro-life voice that also was, you know, in favor of supporting women, in favor of preventing unwanted pregnancy. So basically, I, I saw a post online, and it had this quote to it. If you want to prevent abortions, you should make sure that everyone has health care, high school education, and birth control. Believe it or not, when I was a kid, this didn't fall outside the realm of conservative Christianity at all. I grew up in a state that we now would consider to be one of the most red states, one of the most conservative Republican states in our country. And yet when I was growing up, this was one of the ways that you were pro-life. You know, the Republican worldview, certainly conservative Christianity at the time, was not anti-prophylactic as it is today. It wasn't anti-sex you know, education as it is today, and it certainly wasn't anywhere near as upset about preventing pregnancy through the use of hormonal birth control. Now, the Christianity that I grew up with was not a huge fan of promiscuity, didn't want to encourage premarital sexuality, but maybe the smarter people that I interacted with, the, the, the more adult of the grown-ups, understood that there wasn't this direct knee-jerk connection that some people assume between the availability of contraception and an immediate dive headfirst into wanton promiscuity. Here's the way I worded it online. It's a rare thing for me to read a Facebook post on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, but I want to do it today because I want to start with a different drummer. And one of the things that's going to be quickly revealed when I start with a different drummer is that I failed completely despite a very sincere call for help. I've spent the past couple of days, and again, this was almost two weeks ago, looking for a pro-life different drummer. Sincerely. I want to talk about the humanity of that worldview to balance out the points I've raised on abortion rights issues. The problem is that I need something I could have found easily 20 years ago, but cannot get it all today. Morally opposed to abortion, supporting the intelligence and dignity of women to make the best possible choices, and strongly committed to accessibility and usage of birth control. What did I find instead when searching for search terms like pro-life and pro-contraception? Just a bunch of websites from the religious right that say things like, you cannot be pro-life and pro-contraception. Really? Well, that's just one more reason why I cannot be pro-life. It's important to note, though, that this hasn't been the Christian worldview for very long, not even for half of my lifetime. So I'm still in the market for a different drummer who's genuinely pro-life, as I've just defined it. I can't recall ever struggling this much for a topic-appropriate shout-out before, and here I am, recording the episode, and I've got nothing. My different drummer will be Nancy Griffith. So if I cannot speak to the issue of abortion politics and contraception and where this new controversy seems to have come from, where the twain are meeting, and perhaps people at some point thought that they shouldn't, instead I guess I'm going to have to tie back to last week a little bit and talk about where do I find my comfort when issues of racial unrest pop up. Now, I'm not going to talk about race directly in this inappropriate conversation, but it will come up. 
I'm going to share some words from a speaker. He's going to take care of it for me. And then I'm going to react to what it is he has to say. And I don't want to rehash anything I said in that brief intro last week about the George Zimmerman verdict in the, in the killing of Trayvon Martin. But the one thing I would offer is that anybody who suggests that we're in some sort of post-racial society isn't even paying attention to the conversations they're having. I had a few conversations online last week about the issue of the day, and the issue of the day for much of the week was the Zimmerman and Martin situation and the trial and the verdict and the aftermath of the verdict. And a lot of people who would, on the one hand, insist that this has nothing whatsoever to do with race were using a lot of racially incendiary comments in doing so. I don't think we've solved the problem of racism at all. So when faced with this sort of struggle... And wanting to find either a kindred spirit or words of wisdom, more often than not, I turn to music. And in this case, the music I turn to is the music of Nancy Griffith. And in particular, a song of hers from her Storms LP, which is my favorite album by her, called It's a Hard Life Wherever You Go. No matter what else I say about Nancy Griffith in this segment, let's not underestimate the fact that she is a speaker to social issues in favor of social activism. In fact, at the end of the Different Drummer segment, I'm going to call out why Griffith probably doesn't qualify as this pro-life but progressive voice that I'm looking for. But the song in particular that I cited was her talking about you know, different, different levels of prejudice and how prejudice turns into hate and hate turns into violence. And the chorus of that song, It's a Hard Life Wherever You Go, basically says, hey, if we poison our children with hatred, then the hard life is all that they'll know. What I wonder is whether or not our children, listening to us speak, myself included, the last week and a half or two, whether they heard anything other than angry voices and perhaps even angry voices of hatred. Here is how Nancy Griffith is described in the biography by John Bush on allmusic.com. Straddling the fine line between folk and country music, Nancy Griffith has become as well known for her brilliant confessional songwriting as her beautiful voice. A self-styled folkabilly singer, Griffith began as a kindergarten teacher and occasional folk singer. The country scene took her to heart in the mid-80s, giving her a reputation as a quality songwriter through hit covers of Griffith's songs by Kathy Matea and Susie Boggess. Fighting no luck with commercial country radio, however, Griffith recorded several pop-oriented albums and then returned to her folk roots by the mid-1990s. As I tend to do with musicians, one of the ways I want to talk about Griffith is to speak of her by walking through the music of hers that I listen to on a regular basis. My MP3 player has 41 songs today by Nancy Griffith. I expect that count to, to raise rather than lower over the next few months. It includes tracks from a greatest hits retrospective, including the things you'd expect to hear. From a Distance is a good example of that. But recently, she put out an album called The Loving Kind, where the title track deals with a couple named Loving, who were really the, the crucial case that the Supreme Court finally stepped in and spoke to on the question of interracial marriage. This couple, who stayed married throughout their lifetime, death did part them, to use the phrase you so often hear in weddings. Um, but the moment they were married, they were immediately jailed. And they had to stay in jail until they were able to raise enough bail to defend themselves. And their case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And ironically, um, Loving v. Virginia. Because in the state of Virginia, their kind of relationship was unacceptable. So this is the kind of social activism she sings about. And Griffith makes no bones about it. In singing about the equality of marriage for interracial couples in the late 1960s, she's also singing about the current issues of the day and whether or not it makes sense for the government or even a set of voters to have a strong, firmly entrenched position on whether two people who love each other should be allowed to do so. I mentioned the late 1960s. One of the alarming things about the song, I wasn't that familiar with the case before I heard the lyrics, and it's, a, it's definitely a traditional folk song in terms of telling a story. But 1967 is when the Supreme Court ruled on this case. Now, the couple was, uh, you know, they met in 1958. They married, you know, somewhere. You know, it takes a long time for a court case to get all the way to the Supreme Court and rule on the other side. So they were probably married, quote-unquote, illegally for quite some time before the final verdict came down. 
But in 1967, I was alive. I was walking the earth. I mean, maybe not well. I was, you know, toddling the earth at that point in time, which means that in my lifetime, in this country, it was illegal, at least in large pockets of this country, for two people who love each other to get married for no other reason than some people felt that it was a violation of their own personal moral code, and therefore their moral code could be imposed upon other people. This is the kind of stuff that Nancy Griffith was singing about. If asked to pull my collection of Nancy Griffith songs down from more than 40 to a, a much more conservative number, it would include some of the following tracks. If we wanted to put together a quick Nancy Griffith playlist, Don't Forget About Me from the album Flyer would make that cut. I'm going to come back to that album a little bit later. The title track, The Loving Kind, and from the same album, One of These Days, which primarily is on my player because Todd Snyder sings as a backup vocalist for it, for her. And Nancy Griffith has been a very good music industry person, a, a friend to other musicians, and has spoken out very publicly that she admires the songwriting style of Todd Snyder, and is one of the reasons that I actually made a commitment to seeing him in concert, because it wasn't just that I'd heard concert footage and knew that the Todd Snyder experience live was very different from the one on album, but I also was getting you know, recommendations from other musicians I admired, like Nancy Griffith, willing to call that call him out. My favorite song from my favorite album by her, the uh, Storms album, is Drive-In Movies and Dashboard Lights. Again, very much an album dealing with, you know, how do you raise your children? And in this case, that line between the beauty physicality and the beauty intellectual, literally talking about one sister in a family being praised solely for her looks, and how that played out for her later. How soon the world discovers when your beauty's gone is perhaps the last line or near the last line of that particular song. Another one that has a, a soft spot for me is More Than a Whisper. The live album from One Fair Summer Evening is the one that I carry with me. And it's not a song that had caught my ear before I had met some friends online. I've named, in fact, Allison Downing as a different drummer in the past. And in the course of, you know, exchanging thoughts and ideas on an online forum or on occasion in chat rooms, in this case specifically at simplysyndicated.com, in the course of doing that, it kind of became, you know, one of those moments where we were talking about, well, what are the songs that really get you? What are the songs that make you sad? Or that you find cathartic in a tears of joy sort of a way or an ironic sort of a way? And when people were listing, you know, the songs that, that can always get them to shed a tear, whether a happy one or a sad one, she mentioned more than a whisper in you know, relation to her relationship with her mother, who had not long ago passed away. And I thought, well, that's that's enough to make me want to give this a second look. Here's a person that I respect and admire speaking about a singer songwriter that I respect and admire. And that song hits me harder now than it did before, because I know that that song is meaningful in a way that I hadn't understood before. Nancy Griffith, after making you know, some of those pop-oriented albums that um, AllMusic.com spoke about, turned back to her folk roots in a huge way. The two collections, called Other Voices, the first one, Other Voices, Other Rooms, released in 1993, is a collection of her reinterpretation of what you might consider to be classic folk songs. Some of them I'd heard before, but some of them she was introducing to me. Now, that might tell you something about gaps in my music listening, that there's a certain form of traditional Americana folk that I was not as familiar with as I should be. In particular, Tecumseh Valley, her interpretation of a Towns Van Zant song, another artist that she has consistently praised throughout her career. Uh, I love her version of Tecumseh Valley as much as Van Zant's original, and it is a highlight of this. If you only wanted to get one sense for what her folk period, her folk revival period sounded like, the song Tecumseh Valley is an excellent one. Her interpretation of the uh, Ten Degrees and Getting Colder by Gordon Lightfoot also a highlight of that album. And I had never heard the song This Old Town before, but that song really spoke to me because I lived in parts of the country where she could easily have been describing you know, the city where I went to the university, a, a town that wasn't huge, a, a town that looked across the state to the bigger cities and the, the verse about it being leveled by a tornado. Now, it didn't happen to the city that I went to university, but it happened to cities of similar size in Tornado Alley. She followed that up in 1998 with Other Voices 2, subtitled A Trip Back to Bountiful, and that one also. A fine album with a good collection of folk songs, some of which I've heard before and heard and thought of as country, like Walk Right Back, but others that I had never heard before. And 
and now regard both her version and the originals as important parts of my music collection. You Were On My Mind is one example of that. Hard Times, Come Again No More. And um, the Johnny Cash classic, of course, I Still Miss Someone. Uh, Nancy Griffith has done a lot to bring me not just back into folk music, but into artists and folk music that I had ignored or that I would you know, made perhaps the mistake of not even considering to be folk. I mentioned that I wanted to come back to the album Flyer because as I make a transition from the different drummer segment back into the topic, this notion of what it means to talk about humanity and whether there's at least some element of what we would call the pro-life worldview that makes some sense and that needs to be protected. And I think Nancy Griffith actually speaks to it pretty well with a sound clip that I'm going to share right at the end of this segment, right as we leave the different drummer. And it's, it's called A Time of Inconvenience. And she's speaking about you know, just, you know, our modern world and some of the collisions that we're dealing with, you know, that we're in a communications age, but sometimes it seems like only the people who have the, the resources, who are in control of the money, really and truly have the right to speak. I mean, I'm almost willing to say, hey, raise your hands if you feel like becoming president of the United States is something you can do if you don't have two dimes to rub together. I would say that becoming president of the United States is not something you can accomplish even if you have $20 million to rub together. It's not enough. In that same verse, though, she ends it with the line, The right to life man has become my enemy. We're living in a time of inconvenience in an inconvenient time. And those words really, they cut to me back in when I heard this Flyer album originally in the very early 90s, in 1994. And so very little has changed in the intervening 19 or 20 years. I'm still in a place where getting what the pro-life movement once accomplished done, helping them get what they want, means I have to fight them every step of the way. I told some friends online today that they were going to be the inspiration behind this particular episode of Inappropriate Conversations, and it was a true statement, but I'm not actually going to quote directly very many of them, perhaps just a couple, but know that if I gave you a shout-out, I'm thinking about you too. I'm thinking about you if you're somebody who has a progressive, perhaps even liberal worldview, but has seen a different perspective on questions of, of life because you have a child now. So um, this notion that you might have had of not being willing to kill to defend your home, maybe not being willing to kill or do whatever it takes to defend anybody other than perhaps your wife, now that you got a child at home, changes your worldview. It changes everything. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about you from, the, from that perspective. I also might be making a shout-out along more Christian lines in terms of saying, well, what does it mean to be a Christian who doesn't fit into this pro-life mold? I know I'm not alone here. I'm going to speak about it in the month of September when it comes to questions of supporting people who are an embattled minority because of their sexuality. In fact, I'm going to hint at that a bit today. And again, I think you folks know who you're talking about. But let me quote Kevin directly, because I found a quote that I had saved from one of the previous incarnations of the forum that simply syndicated, a forum that's not up online anymore. But I was able to save some quotes, and this is what he said, speaking directly about the question of abortion and how his... You know, political worldview, at least his previous political worldview, might be different from his personal view. And that's really what I want to get to today is, is where that line is. On one hand, I understand as a Christian right and wrong. I also understand politically how to accomplish things in the right way. And I'm well aware of the fact that most Christians are doing it the wrong way. But personally, if you just boil all that away, just get rid of all of it and say, hey, would you, in your relationship with your wife ever, you know, choose to get an abortion. And if you take away things like sexual violence or rape or 
you know, serious health consequences or life at stake. Would, it, would I have ever made that choice from a matter of convenience? Would there ever be a, a, a fear that I wouldn't have enough money to pay the bills if we had one more kid? Would that trigger me? And it's not something I want to impose on every other person in this country. But for me personally, you know, those other circumstances wouldn't, wouldn't have been enough. Even if something really bad had happened, you know, deciding that abortion was a way to go, an answer to per- pursue, is not something that I could have come to easily. Even if another person might look at the circumstances and say, well, that's obvious, of course you would. I want to respect them for feeling that way. But I equally, in this episode, above any other episode of this show, want to respect people who have a different perspective and make a distinction between, I'm going to have a problem with you if you want to impose your worldview on everybody else, but I'm not going to have a problem with you just because your worldview is different. Because sometimes, when you boil it right down, when you take the politics away, maybe maybe my worldview isn't that different from a lot of people that we would consider to be on the political right. Here's what Kevin had to say. This was something of a cold intellectual debate to me until I saw my girl at her first scan, kicking, bicycling, playing in the womb. Pretty incredible. And I'd be well within the law to have stopped her life right up to birth here in Canada. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Okay, so on the one hand, I have Nancy Griffith, who, if you look at her activism online, has charities she supports like the Vietnam Veterans of America Foundation, Minds Advisory Group, Adopt-A-Minefield, uh, Journey of Hope, which helps you know the, uh, the family members of murder victims, and Voters for Choice, an independent, nonpartisan, pro-choice political action committee founded by Gloria Steinem. They are the only national organization devoted solely to electing Democratic, Republican, and independent pro-choice candidates to office, cutting through the political nonsense and speaking across the political spectrum for the notion of saying, hey, it's okay if there's a right to choose. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're advocating any one choice over another, whether one of those choices even might be appropriate or inappropriate when compared to others. I want to compare that voice, however, to the voice of Eric Metaxas. Not long ago, January, February of this year, the Take Him With You podcast, which I've always enjoyed, still listen to on a regular basis, released an episode where they were primarily discussing Metaxas and a speech he gave at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2012. I believe February 2nd, 2012. If you wanted to try to look it up, on YouTube. I'm going to share a clip of that here in just a moment. The first, if you wanted to go back and check Take Him With You out, it's uh, www.takehimwithyou.com. And the episode in their, in their archives is number 208 called, Is Your Religion Dead or Alive? Now, this concept of having a living relationship with God versus having some sort of museum preserved, petrified version of a religion that once was, traditions that have to be maintained. Metaxas himself in the speech talks about that distinction. And this is something where Metaxas has a passion for religion being real and live and vital and making a difference in the world. Rick and Amy Moyer share that same perspective on a weekly basis in their Take Him With You podcast, and I agree as well. There's some interesting things he said in the speech, though, and I was so inspired by what I heard both positively and in some ways negatively, that I wrote in and actually handed handed a piece of uh, email communication to the Moyers that I don't think they were at all prepared to deal with in any sort of direct way in the format of their podcast. Well, they're not political, but I am. So let me play a little clip of Metaxas's speech. It cuts to the heart of what I want to talk about the rest of the show here, this notion of respecting life, at least from the perspective of respecting what it means to be human. And then I'll share some of the letter that I wrote to Rick and Amy as commentary back to Metaxas's ideas. England 
paid lip service to religion in those days. Everybody said, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm English. Yeah, we're, we're Christians. Uh, but they really seemed to think, most of them, that the slave trade was a fine thing. So keep in mind that when someone says, I am a Christian, it might mean absolutely nothing. But for Wilberforce, it became real. It was not about Christianity. It was about the living God and serving him. And Wilberforce suddenly took the Bible seriously, that all of us are created in the image of God. He took this idea seriously, that it was our duty to care for the least of these. And he said, Lord, I will obey. Now, he fought politically. He fought hard. And, you know, the only people really fighting with him at this point were the fanatical Christians. Did you know that? All the churchgoers, all the religious people, they were not alongside him. Who was alongside him in those days? The born-again nuts, the Quakers, the Methodists that people made fun of, they were in the trenches because they knew they had no choice but to regard the Africans as made in the image of God and worthy of our love and respect. Everyone else was just going with the flow. All the people who just went to church, as I say, they got it wrong. They had not seen Jesus. Wilberforce took these ideas, these foreign ideas from the Bible, and brought them into culture. And you can read about it, not just in my book, which the president may read, uh, you can read about it. This is historical fact. This is not my spin. This is true. Wilberforce, because he believed what the Bible said and because he obeyed what God told him to do, he changed the world. Today, think of this, my friends. Today, we argue about how to help the poor. Some say, oh, the public sector, government is the answer. Others say the private sector, free enterprise. But today, we argue about how to help the poor, not whether to help the poor. Praise the Lord. The idea to care for the poor, the idea that slavery is wrong, these ideas are not normal human ideas. These are biblical ideas imported by Wilberforce at a crucial time. Human beings do not do the right thing apart from God's intervention. We always do the phony religious thing. We go with the flow. In Wilberforce's day, going with the flow meant supporting slavery, that Africans are not fully human. In Bonhoeffer's world, in Nazi Germany, it meant supporting the idea that Jews are not fully human. So whom do we say is not fully human today? Who is expendable to us? Please discuss amongst yourselves. Thank you. <laughs> but back to Nazi Germany. Folks, this was a moment ago. My mother lived through this. There are people in this room who lived through this. This is a moment ago. I was in Germany last week. I met people who lived through this period. It was an extraordinary thing to be there, to meet people who, who were the sons of heroes fighting against Hitler. This was a moment ago that this horror happened. I read somewhere that it is so crucial for Christians to be authentic, unashamed, and honest. And in this respect, lots of the things that I liked about Metaxas's talk, not surprising that Rick Moyer felt the same way, to perhaps to an even greater degree. So I wanted to write in and give the Moyers a, a sense that, first, I really appreciated their show. Um, there's no way I'm going to go onto YouTube and spend 20, 30 minutes or more with a national prayer breakfast speech, especially one that was almost a year old at the time. But I chose to do so because it was on the Take Him With You podcast, and I found it to be quite, quite rewarding. He made me think, Metaxas did, and that's always good. At the time, Amazing Grace was written, perhaps England did take its Christianity for granted in the way he described. It reminded me of all the talk these days about America being a Christian nation, and whether the name Christian or Christian nation is more important to some people than anything we actually do. I've been convicted lately, in the spiritual sense of the word, about the meaning in the Gospels of Mark chapter 8 verse 34 through chapter 9 verse 1. I've talked about this before, actually, sharing those verses. I'm not going to read the verses of the Bible again now, even though it might be appropriate to do so. Instead, I'm going to treat this episode as if it's a cross-reference of some sort, uh, inappropriate conversations junction, where, like a Grand Central Station, 
a bunch of ideas are going to come that could easily feed you back to previous episodes where there's relevant ideas to discuss. In this case, this, this notion at the end of Mark's Gospel, I talk about in some detail in Inappropriate Conversations number 97, Anyone Being Ashamed. Here's the gist of it, though. It's both the talk we often hear about being ashamed of Christ. You're ashamed of Christ if you deny him, in other words. And also the sentences right before that, where Jesus says we need to pick up our cross to follow him. I do not believe that Jesus is saying that we could deny him with thoughts and beliefs. Instead, it's about what we do or what we don't do. Picking up your cross is about actions so much more than words. Likewise, being genuine, unashamed, and honest must also be about what we do. So I'm taking to heart Metaxas's words about the notion that Africans or Jews weren't considered fully human by many in the past 100 years, or sadly, still today in some corners. His quote, So whom do we say is not fully human today? Who is expendable to us? I will not dismiss his questions through any preconceived notion that I might disagree about how his answer may or may not turn into policy. I don't want this to be about policy. If you want to hear my thoughts on abortion policy, he is, of course, hinting, and not in such a coy way, that he feels like the element of our society that we view as less than human today is the unborn child. Well, I've spoken about abortion on more than one occasion. I think uh, Inappropriate Conversations number 59 and 60 go into some detail. I mentioned it again in Inappropriate Conversations 72, talking about Christians who can't be honest with themselves and therefore can't be honest with others about the abortion as a debate. That we never have a good, healthy debate because we're not even honest with ourselves. And, and even then later in Inappropriate Conversations 114, dealing with that issue even more directly about Christians who tell lies or Christians who tell other Christians to tell lies. And what do we do about that? And lastly, at some point in here, I'm going to get into birth control a little bit. And there's going to be folks who say, well, hey, you know, birth control is against the Bible too. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's certainly a factual statement that birth control is against the Roman Catholic tradition. And it's against a lot of Protestant churches who imitate Roman Catholicism. But in Inappropriate Conversations number 84, which I believe I just called Birth Control Yourself, that also dealt with the, the biblical foundation or the shaky biblical foundation for those who think that the Bible is opposed to birth control. The evidence doesn't back up the claim. So think of this as, a, as an episode that gives you a lot of cross-reference points for previous inappropriate conversations and interesting places to go back and dip into the past because the iTunes feed only has maybe 20, 25 at the most previous episodes that are readily available in the feed. But the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org has everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And by that I'm referring to the first uh, you know dozen or two episodes where the sound quality wasn't being all it could be. But every episode I've ever recorded is still online because I feel like it's important to be out there with everything, warts and all. So I'm not going to let a notion that I have uh, it's a notion backed up by some of the research I've done, where if you go sneak a peek out on Twitter or elsewhere, you can see that Metaxas has done things I would disagree with. He's celebrating the political nonsense that went on in Texas, where the state of Texas, and frankly the state of Ohio, and the state of North Carolina, and lots of other states that are, for the time being, Republican-led legislatures, are trying to take uh, accessibility to birth control and other health care away from women. So obsessed are they with removing any clinic that provides abortion that they're more than happy to remove the same clinics that provide breast cancer screening and vaccines and contraception. And it doesn't seem so accidental to me. But for now, I'm going to set that aside and just say, let's look at, let's look at Metaxas's question. Whom do we say is not fully human today? Who is expendable to us? And I guess my question, if we grant that he's right to ask this, are we a nation capable of even having this discussion? Can we have this discussion in an authentic, genuine, honest way? Can we have this discussion without screaming Bible verses at each other? 
I do have some other objections to his speech. If you listen to Metaxas through and through, there's a couple points in this uh, Take Him With You podcast or in the YouTube clip they shared that I think are really controversial. Um, One of them, he makes the statement that he thinks that our country has settled the question of whether to help the poor, and we're only just arguing now about how to do it. Should we do it through taxation? Should we do it through the government? Should we have a standardized health care that's somewhat universal? Or should we do it through the churches? Or should we do it through volunteer philanthropy? Or maybe each individual should just you know, lace up their bootstraps and take care of themselves. We are having that debate. He's not wrong. On the other hand, there were candidates within the political primaries in the last year or two who did reopen questions about whether to care for the sick. In other words, Metaxas has it wrong. Now, I don't know whether the presidential debate, where some libertarian-type candidates spoke about letting the uninsured die if they couldn't pay for their emergency health care out of pocket, if they didn't bother to get insurance and they couldn't cover the cost so they should just be left on the sidewalk in front of the emergency room to bleed to death. Maybe those statements were made after Metaxas's speech. Maybe they were made after he wrote the speech, but before he presented the speech. I'm not sure, but I know on at least one occasion, Ron Paul made that statement publicly in a televised Republican political debate and got a standing ovation, not from the 25 or 35 libertarians in the room, but from everybody in the room, seemingly. At the very least, this cross-cut in the crowd of the right wing of the American political spectrum, libertarians and non-libertarians, neocons, the whole nine yards, pretty much gave him the auditory equivalent of a standing ovation. He wasn't getting boos. He was getting cheers. So clearly, we have not decided the issue of whether we're going to help the poor. And a lot of my friends on the religious right, people who mix their conservative politics with their Christianity, have a hard time even coming to terms with the idea of what Jesus would have us do about poor people. Because sometimes their political politics win, and the heart of Jesus Christ loses, despite the fact that they are Christians, proudly even, who believe we live in a Christian nation. We may just live in a Christian nation who's choosing to ignore everything that Jesus said about the poor. Now the talk itself, I'm restating, the talk was good and valuable, but part of it that I didn't play, part of it I didn't cover, was his introduction, where... He talked about the political group called The Family. There's information about them online. It's hard to find, frankly, because of the secretive nature of the group. There have been allegations, and I'm going to share a couple of those allegations here in just a moment, that they're involved in things which I think probably your average American would, would be uncomfortable with. And I'm, I'm always inherently uncomfortable with any group that feels that the best way to lead in a democracy is to do so with a great deal of secrecy. But having said that, I'm glad that the family, is what they call themselves, invited Metaxas to do this speech. Because this same material that he covered could have gone very wrong in the hands of someone who chose to wear Christianity like a shield and demonstrate a complete misunderstanding of what the Apostle Paul meant when he called the Bible the sword of the Holy Spirit. Metaxas joked about that secretive organization, the family, committed to influencing politicians and public policy without being accountable to much, if any, scrutiny. The prayer breakfast, in fact, is the most public and probably the most good thing they do. And John chapter 3, the Gospel, tells us to be very wary of those who keep their activities in secret when Jesus was referring to being in the light Those two ideas are diametrically opposed to each other. And it makes me uncomfortable when someone talks about working in secret and in the darkness to accomplish some moral good when there's no accountability. Let me put it this way. On this idea of true Christianity being shown in what we do, as in what we do for the least of these, and again, the least of these includes the poor, it also includes the marginalized members of our society people that have been shunned, people who are outcast, people who are sick or prisoners, and not instead trying to show your Christianity through some front we might put up for the world. Metaxas says this, he says, we cannot demonize our enemies. Well, he's quite right, 
but that would make it even so much worse if someone like Pastor Scott Lively aligned himself with a political lobbying group like the family, alleged to be this group as a matter of fact, and campaigned in African countries like Uganda to pass laws that would put all homosexuals to death and imprison people who shielded them from the strategic initiative of Lively and others. Maybe the family, maybe not the family. We don't know. They're not honest enough to say. See, the bottom line is, we can, as Christians, as conservatives, do so much more damage with hateful action than we ever could with hateful words. It isn't enough that Christians mind their words. Yes, we must be very careful about how people opposed to the so-called religious right use terms like bigot and homophobe. In very recent episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, I've tried to walk us through that so we'd have a better understanding of when bigot really does apply and when maybe even homophobe is too strong of a term. But we do have to be careful. But there's nothing Christian about pushing for capital punishment against all non-heterosexuals. This is typically a bullying tactic to make people afraid to be genuine, to make people afraid to be honest, ensuring that everyone who is different tells the same type of lies about themselves that were the norm before I was born. Somehow we can't understand that what was happening in a society where an entire crosscut of maybe 10% or more of our population was taught, sometimes violently, that the only way to get by, the only way to survive, was to lie about who you are. There's nothing remotely Christian about that. So, when we're talking about how important it is to not demonize our enemies... We probably shouldn't be pressuring, well, first of all, we probably shouldn't be declaring so many people to be our enemies. And if we're going to, we shouldn't be pressuring them into pretending to be something they're not under the threat of being ostracized or perhaps even killed. We make no mistake, Pastor Scott Lively is not interested in just solving what he views to be a problem of homosexuality in a far-off country like Uganda. His ultimate goal is to somehow transform the perspective of the world and bring his ethnic cleansing, or in this case his sexual identity cleansing, to Europe and to North America. These are the people that we're rubbing elbows with when we get a little bit too cozy with secret organizations. Or at least, that's a genuine concern. Having said that, I am going to take Metaxas's words to heart, particularly those words in the question about less than human. Who do we call less than human? Who do we treat as less than human? And what does it say about us when we do? On the other hand, I won't ignore the things some Christians do that are violent or dismissive of women or minorities, simply because it's divisive to call it out. And I wonder if Metaxas would agree with me about that. The problem is, I'm not so sure. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Metaxas wants me to say that the people that our society views as being not fully human today are unborn children of every race, color, coming from families of every creed. And I am going to go there. But I'm going to go there under one condition only. That Metaxas perhaps grant to me that there's also a lot of people in this country today who view homosexuals as not fully human. How in the world could you support an organization that supports a pastor like Lively who is going to other countries in the world only because he doesn't think he can get away with it here to have people put to death for no other reason than they are in love with somebody he doesn't think they ought to be in love with? That they have sexual feelings for people that he doesn't think they should have sexual feelings for. Make no mistake, Lively and those who support him, whomever they may be, view homosexuals as expendable. So while we you know, throw a few barbs here and there with a smile on our face and a joke... 
in a presidential breakfast that's supposed to be funny, so credit to Metaxas, he pulled it off. But while we're, while we're being a little snarky underneath the subtext of all that, let's not forget the old adage that when I point a finger at you, my hand has three fingers pointing right back at me. And that when you got a pastor in North Carolina speaking from the pulpit on behalf of his church, on behalf of his denomination, and in his mind, on behalf of his Christian nation, that what this country must do is round up all the homosexuals, put them at a death camp, and starve them until they're gone. This is clearly an example of somebody within the realm of conservative Christian thought who believes that that's a group of people who are less than human. That's a group of people who are expendable. So let's not be throwing any stones here. This cuts both ways. And maybe to a certain degree, the dialogue on an issue like abortion being so well-publicized, being so, frankly, tired and worn, has lowered the quality of dialogue to such an extent that now, anytime we're talking about something, whether it be race relations, whether it be homosexual rights, whether it be, you know, the war on drugs and the drug culture, we... All of us, both on the right-hand side and the left-hand side of the political spectrum, all too quickly go to the point of exterminating people. So when I heard my daughter's heartbeat, and it was at a pace that was, you know, uh, well, it would be frighteningly fast if she were an adult and had that same heart rate, it sort of changes the game a little bit. Because if you're a, a couple who wants to have a child, who's been trying to have a child, and now you finally got one, You know, that's a joy that just really can't be explained to anybody who hasn't experienced it, which is why I've got some other friends who I think have spoken somewhat openly online in public forums about, yeah, they weren't expecting that. You know, I think Rick went from, you know, expecting that he was going to really love his daughter to not really understanding what the depth of that was and how quickly it comes on. And, you know, Kevin described it as being an in vitro moment. And I think because I believe in eternal love, I think once you've discovered the love you feel for somebody my christian worldview has that love being eternal and eternal i've said it before it's not a a ray like a dot at a fixed starting point with an arrow that goes on infinitely in one direction to me eternal love is arrows both ways going eternally in both directions i mean this may sound a little kooky to some but my christian worldview says both that i don't believe that death is the end of everything But I also don't believe birth was the beginning either, which I think perhaps explains a little bit about my politics, that I don't get obsessed with the idea that that God is somehow not in control and that every zygote that doesn't implant is some kind of a crime against the state or some sort of a version of abortion and that birth control helps that along. I'm not Nikolai Ceausescu, the Romanian dictator. I've got a different perspective. If God wants a child to be born, that child's going to be born because What is true has been eternally true. But it's a fair statement to say that when we're talking about whether we view the humanity of things differently for an unborn child versus a born child, I think we do. And I think it's something we've got to come to terms with. Now, part of the reason that my politics, which have been, again, clearly stated on previous and appropriate conversations, are not impacted by this at all. What you do about the issue, to me, doesn't change. You keep abortion legal. You, you, you stop spending millions, if not billions of dollars fighting over it, and you invest your money on making sure that women have sexual education, that boys have sexual education, that health care is readily available, that health care includes contraception, and you do everything in your power to reduce unwanted pregnancy because unwanted pregnancy is unmistakably the number one cause of abortion. But I'm not here to talk about the politics right now. What I want to talk about instead is the fact that, yes, I agree that that unborn child is unmistakably human. We can argue about whether it's a person or not. I can quote Bible verses that tell you loudly and clearly that when God was speaking in the books of Genesis and Exodus, he wasn't talking about a pre-born child being a person. But I'm not going to go there either. I've been there before. In Inappropriate Conversations number 105, press coverage, I you know, put on the pretense of being more liberal than I actually am and talked a great deal about some of those Bible verses. No, it's not that. It, the argument that I've made online in the past is that that unborn child is human in the sense that it is either going to be a living human or it is going to be a dead human. There is nothing else it's going to turn into. Now, 
That doesn't change my perspective, that a woman has the right to control her body and that the state doesn't have the right to assume control of it and that we want our women to be bearing children voluntarily and that we don't want to be creating unwanted pregnancy through ridiculously inept healthcare policies. But when you just boil it right down to saying, hey, what's going on inside the womb of the woman who has not yet given birth? Well, unless you're watching 1970s horror films, it's human. I think we need to accept that. And we need to take seriously what Metaxas had to say about whether or not this human is viewed as not human by people who want to be cavalier about whether to kill it or to allow it to live. Now you see, I don't think we should be cavalier about this decision. If any one thing I was trying to communicate in the George Zimmerman trial and the killing of Trayvon Martin is that I don't want us to be cavalier about whether or not to kill. That I feel like too many people were very, very casual about getting to the point of saying, well, I'm willing to call that self-defense, or I'm willing to say I have a reasonable doubt. Um, yeah, and to me, I think the standard's got to be higher than that. But as humans, we have a standard that says both... I have the right to expel someone who is unwanted from my home. I don't have to accept custody of a foster child if this relationship is broken and not working out. Foster parenting does not inevitably and inherently always lead to adoption. And you can make the argument that, well, there's a biological relationship here. But that biological relationship depends a lot upon how we are doing as a Christian society, maybe not a Christian nation, but at least a Christian culture, in supporting people, supporting people who are poor, uneducated, frightened, marginalized, victims of violence. If we really want to save the life of that unborn child, we've got some work to do. We've got to ask ourselves seriously, if we take seriously the idea that some people in our society view an unborn child as less than human and we need to do something about it, well, then what are we going to do about it? Let me quickly quote one more online friend who I think offers a very helpful and important perspective. And then I will get a little bit into the concept of birth control because I think it's inappropriate for me to talk about that us, we need a better solution to this less than human question facing us without offering any insights on what I think that solution might need to be. This is from a blog called Nanarchist. N-A-N-A-R-C-H-I-S-T, nanarchist.blogspot.com, and a post that was put up in July of this year uh, called Feelings, Facts, and Faith, July 3rd, 2013, really responding directly as a citizen of the state of Texas to what was going on in Texas, where the state, as it turned out, succeeded through a lot of political shenanigans, including purportedly Christian people, lying about what time it was, falsifying documents, and a governor calling special legislative session after special legislative session, essentially holding the state hostage and bullying it until it did what he wanted from a political perspective on the issue of abortion. And, and her complaint in the article was that almost every person who came to testify from the perspective of keeping the clinics open was dropping facts, figures, science, for want of a better word. And some of them were, were bringing both science and religion to it because it's easy to quote Jesus in taking care of people who are poor and marginalized and in need. But the other side was pretty much just a litany of people coming to testify about how much they regret either having an abortion or their female partner having an abortion. And the point that she raises was, hey, you know what? All of us regret things. But just because I regret something doesn't mean I get to change the laws. Because if my biggest problem is that I've got a big mouth, and I sometimes say things I shouldn't, does that mean that I get to go to the legislature in the state that I live in and violate the First Amendment by making sure that everybody has to have their speech controlled by, I don't know, somebody else? Somebody not me. Here's how she finished her post, though. Luckily, I've learned from my own experiences. This is Nan speaking. I've learned that a woman can have an abortion and experience no regrets, and that this doesn't make her a bad person. I've learned that a woman can have an abortion, feel regrets, but still believe she has ultimately made the right choice. I've learned that people's lessons are myriad and complicated, and we're here to learn, not to experience pain-free lives. In fact, I've learned that pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth, and I've learned to be grateful for my own pain because it's my greatest teacher. 
and I've learned that I don't get to rob others of the chance to make their own choices because it is those choices that lead them to their own ultimate destinies. There's a lot of God in all of that for me. If a woman who regrets her abortion wants me to sit and weep with her, I will gladly do so. I'm not blind or deaf to her pain, but I also cannot support the idea that her pain is proof that women need to be protected from their own choices. In the end, I have enough faith in both women and my God to know that they don't need me or anyone else to be in charge. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him that one day his children and his children's children would look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. It's hard to be a political moderate. I think Nan in that blog post really spoke to the spectrum of feelings pretty well. I am passionate about humans. I love people. I'm not 100% sure I'd be doing this podcast if that weren't true. I love my children with a passion that is impossible for me to articulate. And it takes a, a certain amount of resistance for me to say I don't want my experience to be imposed upon everyone else's, because of course I think I'm right. So what do I think we should impose upon everyone else? Well, first, I think that we should love and respect women for the, for the people that they are. That if we're afraid of equality, then we're afraid of what Jesus Christ did in the Gospels. If we can't trust women to make important decisions, then the Holy Spirit led the wrong people to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Food for thought. So I think we need to find a way to empower women to make choices that are optimal for them. And I think we're going to be surprised when we get there about how often those choices are consistent with what we as people trying to build a society might expect of them without using force to do it. Well, the number one way we get there is to make sure that nobody gets pregnant because they're too dumb to know what sex is. That's happening in a lot of states in this country. Any state that says that the most important thing that we can do in sex education is not teach you anything about contraception and not teach you anything about sexually transmitted diseases and not teach you anything about you know, actual sexual desire and how it functions and sexual pleasure and how it works, it's a huge mistake. My parents always said, you know, if you don't learn it in the church or if you don't learn it in schools or if you don't learn it at home, you're going to learn it on the streets. And that's the wrong answer. The other thing is we need to trust that when a kid is imbued with both that knowledge and the values of their family. And I mean family with a capital F. That could mean not just their parents and their siblings, but also their neighborhood. Certainly grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, but friends, the church, the school in which they learn. There's lots of ways that we can empower people to make good decisions. And I personally believe that if you get the morality right, you can pour all the other information in the history of the world into that child's head, and you're not going to create a monster. Knowledge does not create monsters. Believing that educated people inherently and inevitably become monsters makes them less than human. So back to Eric Metaxas and his talk at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2012. He seemed to imply at some point that getting an Ivy League education might inevitably make you a, a bad Christian or a weak Christian or make you lose your faith. No, you're now declaring those who are part of higher education, either as students or as professors or as faculty in other you know, functional ways, to be less than human. See, we've got to watch all the ways that we demonize people, because it's not enough to say we're not going to do it if we actually just turn around and do it in the same talk, before the same audience, and in the same way. No. Pouring knowledge into the heads of people does not make them evil. Knowledge is power. The Holy Spirit uses knowledge. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that his Holy Spirit is going to give his apostles the knowledge that they need. 
And then the next thing is to provide contraception. The number one cause of abortion is under is unwanted pregnancy. And the easiest way we can resolve the issue of unwanted pregnancy is to make sure that everyone who wants to contravene on conception has contraception to do it with. It's a very simple concept, and I'll just lay it on the line. I'm passionate about this concept that unborn children should not be aborted. I'm passionate about this concept that what is in the womb of a, of a woman is human. It's human you know, at the point of birth, but it's human before birth. It's human in con- at the moment of conception. It's human in the mind of God centuries before the man and the woman ever met and decided to have sex with each other. It is human. But to protect the lives of those humans, we need to respect the dignity of human life enough to take the creation of it as seriously as we take the delivery of the child. If you believe that you're pro-life and you have a passionate perspective about saving unborn children, you need to equally have a passionate perspective about the creation of unwanted pregnancy. If God wants a child to be born, it's going to be born unless your God is fictitious. Fictitious gods don't do anything. So where does this all wind up? I agree with my friend Kevin that there is something positively miraculous that happens not just inside the womb of a woman who's about to give birth or who's developing toward the path of giving birth, but in the lives of both parents. You know, but, well, there's a special relationship between the woman and her child. Yeah, there's a special relationship between the father and the child, too. There's a special relationship between that woman's best friend that she loves as passionately as two friends could possibly love in a non-sexual way, and the child, too. Love has this magic way of cutting across time and across space and across location and across position. So, yes, yes, it's important that we respect what it means to say, hey, that's an unborn child. And if you're Christian, you think that God loves the child. But even if you're not, somebody loves that child. You know, and maybe that means that there's some adoptive parents waiting to, uh, to, you know, to adopt a child. That somebody who has an unwanted pregnancy chooses to heroically bear and give up for adoption. But the problem, as I mentioned in that one inappropriate conversations from a few years ago, truth or consequences for Christians. There's a lot of Christians who see nothing heroic about a woman who gives a child up for adoption after having given birth. Because she's only doing what she has to do, what she's supposed to do, anything else is evil. Well, again... Maybe we should stop demonizing people. Maybe we should start celebrating all of the little victories that come along, including the victory that says, hey, maybe when that girl goes to a nearby clinic or a Planned Parenthood and gets the birth control, that is going to prevent her from having coming to come back into the clinic in a way that political conservatives find so offensive. Maybe she's going to use the birth control wisely, have sex, and never get pregnant. Maybe she's not going to have sex at all because having the birth control has forced her to think a little bit more seriously about her relationships, put some time and reflection into the relationship, and maybe she's going to decide to wait a little longer or not trust that sex is going to fix whatever's wrong in this relationship, which, you know, not always what happens, but sometimes that happens. And maybe for the young man, you know, going and picking up that condom means that now you're kind of committing to this extra step. There's this thing you have to do, which you don't really have to do when it's just you by yourself in your bedroom or in your bathroom. You know, so there are other things that happen when you pour information into people that just we have, we have this sort of very naive idea that the availability of contraception leads to promiscuous sexuality, which leads to unwanted pregnancy, which leads to abortion. And therefore, we need to take away the contraception by shutting down the clinic or we just need to stop the abortion. Should we shut down the clinic? But shutting down the clinic takes away the contraception, which leads to the unwanted pregnancy. This is really a lot more simple than we make it. If you love kids as much as you say, if you think the unborn are at least not less than human, even if you can't meet me all the way over here at fully human, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to protect them by putting them in harm's way in the form of creating the largest percentage increase in unwanted pregnancy that this planet has seen since Ceausescu's Romania? Are you going to protect them by making sure that every parent, male and female, responds to the child in that sonogram the same way I did and the same way 
So many of my friends have. That's the way forward. If you don't take that seriously, if you're not interested in maximizing the quality of the wantedness of pregnancy, please stop calling yourself pro-life. Thanks for listening.